Romans chapter 10, I read to you the first five verses. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Amen and amen. amen. The five verses end with the hopeless situation of Moses' law, where Moses had said from God by inspiration that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. If you could keep the law of Moses perfectly, you could live by it. But no man can come even close to keeping the law of Moses and its 700 plus commandments perfectly. And so the law of Moses became a source of condemnation for us because it points out that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. The law of Moses becomes a schoolmaster, as Galatians chapters 3 and 4 describe it, leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ, constantly reminding us that we don't know enough and we don't do enough to make it on our own. We need a Savior. It's a schoolmaster that drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ in that last verse. There will be some repetition with last Sunday, but there will be some new things as well. I must repeat, because if we are to understand this chapter and the next chapter, you need to be established in what is intended by Israel and saved. In that first verse, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So there's two words here that we need to rightly divide and then rightly define. What Israel is under consideration? Chapter 9's purpose was to point out that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, according to the 6th verse of chapter 9. According to the 24th verse of chapter 9, the vessels of mercy which God had afore prepared into glory were of the Jews. It wasn't all the Jews. It was just some of the Jews. And then the apostle quoted from Hosea twice and from Isaiah twice in verses 25 through 29 and showed that there had always been an election and a reprobation, that's a choice, and a rejection of Israel in generations past. Then in verses 30 through 33, the apostle points out that Israel, for the most part, did not believe the gospel, and in specific, elect Israel did not all believe the gospel. And so when we come to the first verse of the 10th chapter, we understand that to be elect Israel. And I've already spent a lot of time on this, but I want you to remember forever 
that when anyone takes you to Romans 10.1, or when you're in Romans 10.1, you ask two questions. What Israel is this? And what salvation is this? The answer to the first question is, this is elect Israel. If we assume, like 99.99% of all others, that this is national Israel, cultural Israel, racial Israel, religious Israel, or Jews by their birth certificate, and what's in their trousers, and that is circumcision, if we look to the descendants of Abraham biologically, we miss it. And we contradict everything Paul's taught thus far. Paul has taught thus far in chapter 8 that God's elect will be saved every single one of them, and it's impossible for them to be separated from the love of Christ. It is impossible for them to be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for them, the elect, the predestinated ones, in verses 29 through 30, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? When you look at Romans 8.28 to Romans 8.29, you realize that God's elect have eternal glory guaranteed to them by God. If God be for us, who can be against us? These are words from that passage. Because it is God that guarantees glorification, justification, calling, predestination, and foreknowledge on the, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. In that, that That's chapter 8. When we come to chapter 9, we see the potter in verses 21 through 24, and we see that we're not even, we don't even have the right to question the potter. That he takes the same lump of clay, and that's speaking of humanity, and makes vessels of honor, glorious, beautiful, sons of God, and he takes other, the rest of the clay, and he creates vessels of dishonor, leaving them in their own sins and depravity, and under the control and reigning authority of the devil, as vessels of dishonor, ugly, vessels of wrath, as the passage would go on, continuing to use the word vessel, because it's God that fashioned it as the potter. Hath not the potter power over the clay? of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The vessel to honor is called a vessel of mercy. And it is a four prepared to glory because it's going to spend eternity in heaven. The vessels of dishonor are called vessels of wrath because God is going to show His wrath and His power on them through eternity in hell. And so we come to chapter 10 with that, and much was said about those verses, and we read, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is, this can only be elect Israel, because Paul would not be preaching, praying, desiring, thinking, speaking, or writing against the potter and the sovereignty of God in his decrees of Romans 8 and 9. Don't let anyone ever mislead you. Don't let them deceive you. Don't let them handle the word of God deceitfully. As I read earlier from 2 Corinthians 4, If you'll keep the context in mind, you'll be saved. Oh, you mean there's another salvation that I need? Indeed. And so we come to the second word in verse 1. That they might be saved. Well, if it's elect Israel, how do they need to be saved? If it's elect Israel, they're elect. So election is already in place for them. If they're elect, then justification is in place for them because that is simply a choice of God to view a man through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. It is a forensic, legal term. 
if God elected them and Christ justified them, they will be certainly regenerated so that they have the right nature to be in heaven with God, partakers of His divine nature. And if God has done those things for them, they shall be glorified in heaven at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, those things are certain. But there is an uncertain aspect of salvation, which based on human diligence and faithfulness and God's blessing of diligence and faithfulness results in the conversion of God's elect. And no two men are converted alike. That should be evident of what I read this morning. I read from the heart of a man that's very converted, especially right now, who's very conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not everyone in this assembly is conformed to that degree. There's no two people been converted alike. alike. Yet we will all be alike, elected, justified, regenerated, and glorified. But not converted. And I showed you verses last Lord's Day that showed that even Timothy was warned by Paul that if he did not give attention to himself, that is his private life, and the doctrine, he could be unsaved. He could lose his salvation. And if he lost his salvation, so would those that heard him lose their salvation. Well, now we don't believe in losing your salvation, but we better define those words when we say it. We don't believe that you can lose your place in the book of life. And your glorification, which is guaranteed by God's election, Christ's justification, and the Spirit's regeneration. But you can lose your conversion. Look at the Apostle Peter. He spent three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ, preached and baptized, was mighty in word and deed, a chosen one out of the twelve. He was the favorite, one of the favorite three of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, on the night of our Lord's betrayal, crucifixion, Jesus said, You're going to deny me three times tonight, Peter. But when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And so Peter was going to fall, but not fall from grace, fall from obedience, and the Lord would convert him again and turn him back to the truth. And he was a great apostle, and we have two epistles by his name. And when we read the book of Acts, we find that the door to the Gentiles was opened by Peter. So when we come to the first verse, we make these distinctions. And if we don't make these distinctions, we're being foolish in the Word of God, and we will be ashamed in our doctrine and not approved of God. You will contradict the Apostle Paul. Some of you, having been raised in Arminian churches and hearing this verse used many, many times a different way, might find it difficult to make the adjustment, but the adjustment you must make. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for elect Israel is that they might be saved by the preaching of the gospel from their ignorant zeal in trying to keep Moses' law for their righteousness. That's the sense of the first verse. Most do not even know that there is a salvation in the gospel separate and distinct from the salvation of the cross, though highly connected, and the salvation of God's decrees before the world began, and a salvation separate and distinct from regeneration when we're born again by the Holy Spirit, and a salvation separate and distinct from glorification in the great day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and we shall be changed. Those are all different phases of salvation. They're actually different salvations. 
Most don't even make the effort to divide the Word of God, let alone rightly divide it. Lord, thank you for all that you've shown us in this matter. That's a whole subject itself. It's been preached before. It'll be preached again, and it'll be preached again soon. Because you must be established in it. I want to point out to you, which I briefly covered as I ended last Lord's Day, the seven benefits of hearing the gospel preached and what make up the salvation that comes from hearing it, believing it, and obeying it. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This distinction that we make in Romans chapter 10 is very important in order to agree with the rest of the New Testament and in order to understand these three chapters. Most, and when I say most, I mean most in all capital letters, bold and underlined, do not make that distinction. They don't really care what went before Romans 10.1, and they don't really care what comes after Romans 10.1. What they care about is that they have a great soundbite for a missionary program. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. They just, they'll write the words, they'll use them as a mantra, but they do not rightly divide them. They do not read them distinctly and give the sense of the words, even though the apostle has just spent a whole chapter trying to prove that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. And so you've got to ask yourself the question, and you've got to answer it, what is real? And if the salvation, meaning heaven and the book of life, is already guaranteed by God, you've got to ask yourself another question and answer it as well. What salvation? We just have done that. Now let me show you that there is a great salvation in the gospel. And brethren, you should be thankful for it. And aren't you thankful for it with what you've heard already this morning? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the knowledge of God and the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad this morning that we're not having an Easter egg hunt on the church grounds? Aren't you glad this morning that we didn't have a sunrise service? These are just a few things of the many things that we get through the preaching of the gospel. Even though our names are in the book of life, Who wants their name in the book of life and to be foolishly and ignorantly attending a sunrise service to turn around and go hear about a Jesus that was in the ground for 36 hours instead of 72 and as soon as you can get that over with to have an Easter egg hunt for the children on the grounds. It's another Jesus. The Lord Jesus from the Bible, when he was asked by the Jews to give them a sign that he was the Son of God. And like I've told you, that's after 14,379 significant miracles. Or did I use 14,379,000 last time? He said, kill me and put me in the ground three days and three nights and I'll rise from the dead. That's my sign. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Romans chapter 9 is in verse 9. Romans chapter 10 is in verse 10. Romans 9 is about God's sovereignty and our election and predestination to eternal life. Romans 10 is about believing the gospel. So let's see if these two verses line up and help us. 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's Romans 9. That's election, justification, regeneration, and glorification. God's purpose and grace given to us in Christ before the world began. Now verse 10. But all that happened in verse 9 is now made manifest. That means it's brought to view. It's made clear and plain. Is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death legally and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Practically. The preaching of the gospel brings these things unseen, some of which happened before the world began, some of which happened at the cross, to light. The preaching of the gospel doesn't bring life and immortality. We do not believe in missionary endeavors that carry eternal life to the lost. We we believe in evangelistic methods and efforts that bring the light of God's salvation through Jesus Christ to the elect. And notice what I want you to gather here in the first of seven aspects of the saving knowledge of God that is in the gospel, the one right here. We would not know about these things. You would not know that you had eternal life or how it was secured for you. You would not know that you had immortality unless the gospel came and told you Jesus Christ bought it on the cross. The Holy Spirit applied it and God chose you to it in His eternal purpose. And you'll be forever with Him in heaven, not a single one lost. It's the gospel that tells us that. It brings it to light. Most people read the verse too fast, Shane, to pick up on the two words, to light. They think the gospel brings life and immortality. But when we read it, it fits. It brings life and immortality to light. We can see it. We understand it. That death in this world is just sleeping in Jesus. That's a pretty significant amount of light. That we have eternity with the God of heaven through Jesus Christ. More verses could be raised. Many more. The gospel saves the elect from ignorance to truth by knowledge of what God has done for them. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at the second benefit of the preaching of the gospel and the salvation that's in it. Once you hear that Jesus Christ did it all and that when He said it is finished, He meant it in a legal way. When you read Romans chapter 8, that the elect can never be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? A rhetorical question demanding a negative answer. You then have to ask yourself, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? I see and I believe your first point. But my immediate question is, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? And so the gospel comes and tells you how you can know you're one of God's elect. Hopefully you won't soon forget 1 John 5, or have you already? That I preached last Lord's Day, where the 13th verse tells us, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe. 
on the name of the Son of God. If someone tells me that my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ proves that I have eternal life, I want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ some more. Because I want to make my calling and election sure. Which is another passage we won't turn to, but it's under this point. Point two of the salvation in preaching the gospel, and that is to be assured of your salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. It's wonderful when the Bible comes and tells us how we can know we're God's elect. It's not underground baptism in the Mormon church. It's not the seven sacraments of the Roman church. It's the work of faith. It means believing on Jesus Christ so that it changes your life so that you work and serve others. It's the labor of love to where your love for God's people and your love for God results in your service toward them and your patience of hope. You're so settled and confident of heaven and spending it with the Lord that you can endure anything in this world cheerfully and you can know your elect. So that comes with the gospel. Let's look at a third benefit. And let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. The third benefit of the preaching of the gospel, or the third aspect of our practical salvation, however you want to term this, is that the gospel tells us what to do. We wouldn't know what to do in worshiping God acceptably. Acts 10.6 is one of my favorites, and I mention it to you, where the angel appeared to Cornelius and said, send to Joppa for one Peter, he's dwelling with one Simon the Tanner, and he shall tell thee what things thou oughtest to do. Because how would we know to do baptism? How would we know to do the Lord's Supper? And so we would have missed the water and the blood of 1 John 5, 8. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. There's many ordinances in the gospel. And so it saves us from not knowing what to do to please God by telling us what we ought to do to please Him. And when something's been ordained of God for you to do, it's called an ordinance. When something's been ordained of God for a church to do, it's called an ordinance. And Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, laid out the ordinances for Gentile churches. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, this is the fourth aspect and the fourth blessing of the salvation that is in the preaching of the gospel. Each one of these, each elect will have to a varying degree. But those that don't have much or any of these can't by any means presume that they're elect because the elect will bear these, all other things being considered equal. If there are exceptions in the Bible, and there are, we call them exceptions because those exceptions do not give us any license to presume on them that we just happen to be lazy, carnal, slothful, unconverted elect. The Bible doesn't describe them except in a couple of specific places. 
and you're not part of Israel of any definition that's in Romans 9 and 10. Because that Israel is a national Israel and the elect within it. You're Gentiles. And the evidence of eternal life is what I just gave you in point two. But we're to point four. First John chapter one. First John chapter one. Verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. This is the gospel being declared to them. That ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It brings about fellowship. And that fellowship with God the Father and with the Lord Jesus Christ includes much joy, as the fourth verse tells us. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. There could be a Cornelius that that heard the gospel about election. But unless he had benefit number two, he wouldn't know he's one of God's elect, and so it wouldn't bring much joy to him. He wouldn't know what to do. And obeying God brings the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And then it brings fellowship with Him. When you learn how you can confess your sins practically and be forgiven practically and fellowship restored by God through Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have those things except for the salvation that comes through the gospel. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God chastens all His children. And if we did not know about God's chastening, how much consternation would that give us and what an attack against our faith it would give us to experience some of the difficulties and severe trials that God's elect have gone through all the way to being martyrs. Now, the vast majority of men were never murdered because they were being chastened. They were murdered because they loved not their lives unto the death and overcame the devil himself, according to Revelation 12, by the blood of the Lamb. But the trials of sickness and the trials of financial trouble and the trials that have beset God's people for their good, like the trials that were in the church at Corinth, where there were many sick and many were weak and many had died prematurely, the Bible tells us is because God loves them. And only those that he loves does he chasten. And if you don't have that kind of chastening in your life, then you're a bastard. And if you're a bastard, then you're a vessel of wrath. And if you're a vessel of wrath, then you're a vessel of dishonor. And if you're a vessel of dishonor, God is going to get his glory through you by showing his wrath and power on you through eternity. All that can be traced back to God's chastening. So when the gospel comes in its entirety, we rejoice because it tells us the purpose of chastening that God loves us. The gospel saves the elect to peace and rest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, come unto me 
and I will give you rest for your souls. There's rest. I like Hebrews 4 because Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, two chapters in this book to Israelites, describe the fact that they missed a rest that God had prepared for them in the land of Canaan. And so it starts off in verse 7 of chapter 3, and that's where it specifically starts, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, and the quotation is from Psalm 95, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter in to my rest. Now those were children of God. Many among them, or all of them, were children of God, yet they didn't enter into God's rest except for Joshua and Caleb. Even Moses and Aaron were left on the other side of Jordan. And so for two chapters, this is developed. But then the apostle gets very, gets very creative by the Holy Spirit in pointing out to these Hebrews that there was another rest. He first of all points out in verses 3 and 4 that there was the rest of the seventh day. But that can't be it. That was God's rest. And we still have Psalm 95 coming way after Genesis chapter 2. Then he mentions Jesus in verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, that Jesus is Joshua. That's not Jesus of Nazareth. That's Joshua from the Old Testament, and it's referring to the rest of the land of Canaan. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Because Psalm 95 comes hundreds of years after Joshua led the nation of Israel into the land of Canaan. It's, very, it's a very wonderful passage. So the apostle can say, verse 9, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. There is a third rest. And that's the rest that Paul is speaking of. And then he tells us what it is. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If these converted Hebrews were to go back to animal sacrifices and the law of Moses, they would miss out on this gospel rest that is made for the children of God. The gospel rest is we stop working for eternal life and trust the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Preached it before, phrase by phrase. I certainly can't do that now. That was benefit number six of preaching the gospel. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, way back in the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 3 is a sample verse of another benefit, a seventh benefit that comes in the preaching of the gospel, a seventh aspect of this practical phase of salvation, another part 
of the salvation that comes when the gospel is preached to us and we believe it. Proverbs 3, verse 3, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. These two verses indicate to us and introduce to us the seventh aspect of practical salvation, and that is, how would we know how to live wisely? How would we know how to have good marriages? How would we know how to rightly train our children? How would we know how to rightly work on the job? How would we rightly know to have wisdom, the power of right judgment, unless the gospel came to us and revealed that wisdom to us? And so we've got it in the New Testament, how to work as employees, how to work as an employer, how to be a wife, how to be a husband, how to be a citizen, and so on and so forth. All this is in the salvation that comes through preaching the gospel. Let's go back to Romans 10. The reason I went through all of that is so many think that all there is to salvation is getting out of hell. Don't don't get me wrong and don't mishear me right now. Being saved from eternal torments in the lake of fire is one fantastic, unbelievable, thanks be to God forever and ever through Jesus Christ, salvation. But there's more than that. If God had saved me from hell, but left me hopeless in this world, if He had saved me and hadn't told me, if I was a child of God, but I didn't know about adoption, what a miserable life I would have. 1 Corinthians 15 actually puts it this way. If in this life only we have hope in Christ We are, of all men, most miserable. Because we have a religion of self-denial because of all that we're going to be blessed with in eternity. But if we don't know about what we're going to be blessed with in eternity, then the life of self-denial becomes quite onerous. It's heaven that makes now worthwhile. And now is defined as giving our bodies a living sacrifice to God. Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. This is elect Israel. The zeal he is describing is not the hypocritical, whitewashed, full of dead men's bones zeal of national Israel and their temple worship. Remember, the gold of the temple meant more to them than the God of the temple. Didn't Jesus make that very plain? The Apostle Paul would ridicule their religion as being nothing but meats and drinks, carnal, beggarly of this world. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. Now within that great national mass of Israelites that rejected the gospel and stumbled over Jesus Christ, there was a section of it that were elect Israelites that also stumbled over Jesus Christ. Because that's what we just had taught to us in the last three verses of chapter 9. The Apostle Paul was one of them. He stumbled over the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't believe and he didn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised and prophesied Messiah. He was looking for something grander, something greater, someone who would deliver them from Rome and and restore Jewish preeminence in the earth. And so listening to the tradition of the elders, 
He thought he ought to do many things against Jesus of Nazareth. He was one of these. He was full of zeal. He describes it before his conversion on the road to Damascus. He was full of zeal against any of that way. And that way is our way. And our way is the New Testament way. And the New Testament way is the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Those Jews went through a lot of motions, and the elect Jews went through a lot of motions with them. But Paul is no wise here commending hypocrisy that Jesus had ripped over and over as he did in Matthew chapter 23 when he called them vipers and serpents and white, whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones and unable to escape the damnation of hell. Jesus spoke very plainly of them. For the reasons that have already been given, we are reduced to the only possibility that makes sense in the passage that the Israel is elect Israel, that the salvation is practical salvation, and the zeal of God that Paul would bear them record He didn't have to bear anybody record for national religious fervor of the Jews, but he was bearing record of zealous Israelites that were elect like he had been, with a pure conscience, serving God, as he said in several places, before he was converted, but not according to knowledge. So when you're explaining this passage to someone, or you're explaining it to yourself, or in this case I'm explaining it to you, It tells us what salvation they need in the second verse. But not according to knowledge. Their zeal is misguided. They don't need godly zeal. They have it already. They don't need to be stirred up. They have it already. They just need to be pointed in the right direction, just like Saul of Tarsus needed to be pointed in the right direction. And the third verse says, For they being ignorant... So it is a salvation from ignorance to proper knowledge. Verses 2 and 3 tell us what the salvation of verse 1 is all about. It's a shame that we have to spend so much time undoing the damage by Arminians and others to corrupt this passage and make it a missionary effort to get new names written down in glory, which they love to sing about. There's a new name written down in glory. No, there isn't, and no, there has never been. The names were written there before the foundation of the world when God chose us by name, personally and intimately knowing us in our entirety before the world began. That's when names were written in the book of life. And if your name wasn't written then, your name's never going to be written there. But if your name is there, you'll never have to worry about a thing because it's all wrapped up in the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's called the book of life of the Lamb slain. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died on the cross, everyone in that book had their sins entirely and forever legally paid for. Thanks be to God. This is coming to a knowledge of the truth so that they are not running about in ignorance trying to establish their own righteousness. Verse 3, For they... That is, these elect Israelites under consideration, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. When it says they are ignorant of God's righteousness, that is not saying 
that they did not know that God was righteous. It is saying that they did not know how they could be righteous before God. They assumed that they could be righteous before God by establishing their own righteousness in the law of Moses. As the middle clause of that third verse tells us, going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Believing the gospel is submitting. Submitting is, okay, I give up. It's ceasing from your own works. Didn't we read that in Hebrews 4, 10 and 11? Ceasing from your own works? Submitting to the righteousness which is of God is giving up to Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Do we sing it? Simply to thy cross I cling. Do we sing it? That's submitting yourself to the righteousness that is of God. That doesn't get your name in the book of life. That doesn't change your standing before God. That doesn't get you regenerated and it won't glorify you. But it'll convert you from ignorance about those four things and give you the assurance that God is indeed your God and you are His people. And He has worked in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure for you to give such a testimony. He has shined in your heart to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I like to submit this way, to give up. Okay, it's over, Lord. I'm not going to try to keep any commandment or any law, any rules, any sacraments, anything to get myself to heaven. I know that the Lord Jesus Christ is already sat down in heaven, having finished his work. I have run to him by faith and believed on him because... The scriptures say over and over, whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed, shall not be confounded, world without end. Because belief is the evidence that I'm a child of God. And then to add to that faith, I'll add some virtue, some knowledge, some godliness, some patience, some temperance, some brotherly kindness and some charity to make my calling and election sure. This is how we understand the scriptures. This is how we understand Romans 10, the first five verses. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Do you know what kind of a package that the Apostle Paul could lay on zealous Jews when he got up to speak in a synagogue? Do you love to read Acts 13, his first recorded sermon, that when he went into Antioch and Pisidia and sat down, the rulers of the synagogue sent back to them Paul and Barnabas back there in the back row and said, Men and brethren, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Say on. Paul said, Yeah, I would appreciate a couple minutes. And Paul went up there and opened the scriptures, and you can read it. It's a recorded sermon, it's Acts 13. Do you know what kind of good news he got to lay on those? that thought they could save themselves by keeping the law of Moses? He didn't even have the book of Romans to turn to yet, but we've got it. And when we turn to Romans chapter 3, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and every soul might become guilty before God. And then he would explain, do you know that Daniel 9 said there was 70 weeks unto Messiah the prince? 
He's already come and gone. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And I've seen him risen from the dead. He died on the cross, just like Isaiah 53 described. All our iniquities and all our sins were laid on him. What a glorious gospel. Christ becomes the end of the law. He's fulfilled it perfectly. He kept everything that Moses ever commanded. Moses commanded, honor thy father and thy mother. Does the Bible say that Jesus was subject to his parents? It does indeed. He kept every term of the law, and it's applied to me. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the first weak, small step of evidence that you're one of God's elect, that righteousness is upon you as well. That is the glorious message of hearing the true gospel preached, and the Apostle Paul brought that to the elect of God. He said in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God guarantees our eternal glory. It is the gospel that brings another salvation. And what is that other salvation? Gospel salvation, practical salvation, coming to the knowledge of the truth, coming to the assurance of our salvation, coming to fellowship, coming to joy, coming to the ordinances that God wants us to keep while we're in this world, coming to peace and rest by quitting. I quit. Oh Lord, I trust in Thee completely. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And that is a good thing because verse 5 says, Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law. Do and live. We have a gospel that declares live and do. It gives us life first and then calls us into action. Not, if you'll act enough, I'll give you life. No one could do that. Paul would write in Galatians and say, if there had been a law given that could have given life, verily, salvation should have been by the law. But there was no law given that could give life except the law of Moses fulfilled through Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. There is our subjective, personal, mental justification that occurs through hearing the gospel preached. When the gospel is preached to us and tells us that God's perfect standard of righteousness has been fully met by the Lord Jesus Christ and completely applied to those that believe, when we believe, it's the same as Abraham believing when God called him out one night and said, tell the number of the stars. That's how great your seed's going to be. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And when we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died as a substitute for the elect of God, and that righteousness comes through that transaction, it's counted to us for righteousness. But then we want a whole lot more counted to us for righteousness. And so the scriptures would, in their progressive revelation of telling us more and more and more, from Genesis 15 to James 2, would tell us about Abraham. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. And the scripture that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness was fulfilled when he took Isaac on an altar many years later. Oh, brethren... Here's where we stand today. What does this gospel mean to you? I tell you that the, the legal righteousness with which we must be clothed, clothed when we stand before God, is the righteousness of one. 
Romans 5, verses 15 through 19. This is how justification is secured legally. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. And that is the second Adam in the second clause. And the first Adam in the first clause. The first Adam's sin made us all sinners and condemned us before God. The second Adam's obedience made us all righteous. And when I say us all, I'm meaning it in the way that the apostle meant it in numerous places. All of us elect that are under the preaching of the gospel made us righteous. And when we believe on Him, we can lay claim to that righteousness. And the Bible would tell us that's how we lay hold of eternal life. It's not how we get it. It's how we lay hold and embrace it for ourselves and hold on to it through this life and even through the curtain of death. We have laid hold of it. You can you do it first by faith and then you do it by good works. The good works that are described in connection with the words lay hold of eternal life are Paul telling Timothy to tell the rich that they be not wise or haughty in their riches, but that they be willing to communicate and ready to distribute laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Isn't that something? You can give money and have a good foundation against the time to come only in the way of evidence because it's the labor of love laying hold of eternal life. That's what it's all about right here. The Apostle Paul wanted to find these elect Israelites and tell them the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would use any means at his disposal to see if he could save some of them as he's going to tell us in chapter 11 and verse 14. When it comes to salvation in Christ, when it comes to our election, our justification, our regeneration, and our glorification, Paul will boldly say in that same 11th chapter, and so all Israel shall be saved. Because there's not a single one of them that's going to be lost. But when it comes to the gospel, there's varying degrees of faith and varying degrees of obedience from top to bottom, in the kingdom of God like there always has been. There are Abrahams and there are Lots. They're both in heaven. There are Samsons and there are Josephs. They're both in heaven. But what a shame if there's a Samson or a Lot among us. What a terrible shame, but it's all to the glory of God if there's reprobates among us. There should be no surprise. But let there not be a Lot or a Samson. Let us be the Abrahams and the Josephs of God's elect family. This is Romans 10, 1 through 5. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. And may you ask yourself, how do I compare and how does this church compare to Paul's desire and Paul's praying that elect might be saved? Are we looking? Are we praying? Are we desiring, are we laboring to try to find God's elect with his blessing that they might be saved to the knowledge of the truth? May Jesus Christ be praised.